Hello and welcome to the AWS podcast. Simon Alicia here with a special episode in a special series for you. This series is called Startup Stories and is a weekly series of podcasts related to the startup world hosted by Darren Morey. In your AWS podcast feed, you'll still get the regular AWS podcast, but now also sometimes special series during the week that will be indicated as such with a tag in the title. That way you can choose which ones to listen to and which ones may not be in your area of interest. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this special series and keep on building. Welcome to the AWS Startup Stories, a weekly podcast about getting a business off the ground, keeping it there, and growing it further. In each episode, we'll be talking to one or several rising stars of the startup world and hear about their stories and ideas, the obstacles they've had to overcome, and the things they wish they'd known before they got started on building their digital businesses. My name is Darren Morey, and I'm the Director of Startup Business Development at Amazon Web Services. Hiring is key in every organization, and that's no different for startups. At AWS, we hear a lot that this is one of the biggest challenges for startups, and so today we brought together Will Bentink, Head of Careers at Makers Academy, Europe's first and leading coding bootcamp, as well as Andrew Thompson, VP of Engineering at YoYo Wallet. Before we dig in, let's make sure and do a bit of introductions. And so, Andrew, let's start with you. Can you give us an idea of your background and experience that brought you to YoYo Wallet, as well as give us a little bit of an insight into what exactly YoYo Wallet does? Sure. Um, so I started out as an engineer out of university um, and really fell into the software industry in Vancouver, where I was at the time. Um, I worked and started in kind of prostate cancer work, building robotics and software to, uh, for PhD students to gather data, then moved on to kind of CT and MRI stitching. And then medical world was really fascinating, um, but it's quite slow. So I took a quite a right turn and ended up in a digital agency building apps and websites for Starbucks and Microsoft and, and Four Seasons. Um, so that was quite different instead of yearly long release cycles it was you know coding till 2 a.m in the morning and then shipping something that would go live the next day um so pretty much i was an engineer for a number of years until i got pinched by a startup in vancouver um i still was coding at that stage and we had raised i think in the total time i was there over three years we raised 20 million canadian so at that sort of scale was my first exposure to holding on for dear life um hiring you know as many top-notch engineers as you can find, uh, letting go of ones that weren't that good, um, and then trying to kind of scale the company with processes and technologies as, as new customers came on. Um, I then emigrated to London three years ago with my wife and my son and uh, kind of got invested in, in the London tech scene. And the whole move to kind of London was it was either between San Francisco or London, and my wife and I loved Europe, so we kind of picked here, and I've got exposed to kind of quite a few fintech companies here in London. So I work for GoCardless, and now I work for, for YoYo Wallet. So what YoYo Wallet actually does is it's a um, digital wallet with the fastest-growing wallet in Europe. Um, basically, we do what Starbucks does for their customers. Consumers can walk in, they can pay and collect loyalty with basically a single swipe at the till. We do that for all retailers. So on the consumer side, we combine payment and loyalty. And on the retailer side, we kind of mine data for them and allow them to basically create campaigns and in real time um, send those to their customers. And Will, can you give us a similar background of your, your experiences leading you to Makers Academy and give us a little more insight into what Makers Academy provides your customers? Sure thing. So uh, I... Uh, came quite late in life to the the startup scene, I suppose. Uh, it wasn't that many years ago, but uh, I 
had sort of set out into the world with some ideas about how I wanted it to be different. Um, and I uh, was in a pub, which I'd had some practice at. Uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, which again, I'd had some practice at. But I think what was unusual about this situation was that he was talking about an idea. And instead of me saying, that sounds like a great idea, good luck. Instead, I said, that sounds like a great idea, let's do it. And I started kind of what I thought of working on kind of social projects with friends. And that ended up with me being started being referred to as a social entrepreneur. And I didn't know what a social entrepreneur was. I didn't even really know what an entrepreneur was. So I took an internship in a startup. Uh, and that startup was a startup that encouraged people to take internships in startups in order to learn how to be an entrepreneur. So I was like weirdly the poster boy of this company. Fast forward a few years, I'm looking for a new job. Uh, I've known about Makers Academy since they started because there was opportunities to partner along the way. Uh, and I discovered this triangle of employment, education and enterprise. And I found all of those things at Makers Academy. Uh, and I recognized there was a big problem in particularly in tech recruitment. And I thought Makers Academy was an excellent solution to that problem. Um, and now here we are with our with our strap line, learn to code in 12 weeks. Um, and a lot of people balk at the idea that it's possible to learn to code in 12 weeks. We've, we've been doing it for four years. We've graduated nigh on a thousand people. Um, they've got jobs in some of the biggest and best engineering companies in the world, but also some of the smallest and earliest stage uh, engineering companies. Uh, and my responsibility at Makers Academy is to go and find those employers and go and build those relationships and, and uh, uh, encourage them that perhaps they might like to consider somebody who doesn't have a computer science degree. Uh, that's interesting. And I think in addition to Makers Academy being focused on skills development, I know you have some insights into concepts like the employer brand. And that's a phrase that's thrown around quite often, but it's becoming more and more important, especially in startups that are competing really aggressively you know, for the very scarce talent in the market. So I'm curious, Will, about your recommendations, perhaps, for startups, startup founders who are thinking about employer brand. What do you think they need to be keeping in mind as they think about attracting the top talent they want to hire? Um, and so the concept of an employer brand is essentially like, well, why would I buy your product? That's your consumer brand. Why would I work for you? That's your employer brand. And a really nice little way of thinking about it is if you take your investor pitch deck, how would you tweak it to encourage somebody to come and work for you rather than to invest uh, their cash? You know, they're investing their time and their and their you know in, uh, their 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 livelihood in you. It's still an investment, so it's still kind of an investor pitch deck. But how would you tweak it to to attract someone to work for you? Mm -hmm. That's a actually really interesting idea is to use the the pitch deck itself. I think that's a that's a great piece of advice. You know, the hiring journey. If we think about starting with the brand and then moving to just the rapid rapid need to hire at scale and hire as fast as possible. Andrew, takes me over to you. You obviously have experience doing that prior to Yo-Yo Wallet, but very much also at Yo-Yo Wallet. And so can you share any of the particulars, any of the insights that you may have on how do you use an employer brand? How do you actually go out and attract the engineers that you want to hire as, as fast as you ideally can hire them? I think, you know, it's obviously a, a well-understood um, practice that you know a lot of startups in town who want to you know find top-notch people we're looking for the smartest people for the cheapest cost who have the least amount of arrogance and you know the highest propensity to roll up their sleeves and just work on whatever needs to happen today which is probably going to be quite different from six months from now um, I think you know there's a lot of people smarter than me that's written about that but I think the interesting part there is 
What are the trade-offs that you have to make when you don't get that ideal candidate who's kind of, you know, the smartest and the cheapest all at one? Do you compromise on, you know, how smart they are? Or do you compromise on paying them more? And trying to figure that out as a company um, is, I think, critically important. Because what will happen is one candidate comes in, um, they're really smart, but they're asking for a lot more than, you know, maybe the, the engineers you have in the office. Now, what do you do at that point? Do you... Um, kind of succumb to that and, and bring them in when they're kind of out of the, the salary band? Or do you, you know, hold true to that kind of journey of saying, look, you know, the talent that we're bringing in, they're going to need to be at the same level. And I think that's something that kind of needs to be discussed at a pretty core level, probably on the exec team. And obviously within kind of the engineering team as a whole, that there's a very widely understood um, idea of, of what you're really looking for and that and what trade-offs you are willing to make. Mm. I'd be interested to know, uh, Andreas, mm. um, you, you mentioned in your uh, microbiog there that uh, you got pinched by, by a startup. Um, <laughs> yes. What, what was your experience there from a candidate point of view around mm. their, their employer brand? How did they recruit, recruit you? Yeah, I think this, this comes back to a point that we'll, we'll, I think, touch on many times over this conversation is this idea of what sort of candidates do you want to hire? So for me, I'm a particular kind of person. I like to be fairly casual. And so how I got pinched was, it was actually a, an English gentleman um, in Vancouver, got in touch and said, how about we go out to the pub for a burger and a beer? Now in Vancouver, that's not the most, you know, it's not nearly as common as it is here in London. Um, and I thought that was very casual and, and easy to kind of um, get in touch with. We talked about the business. Um, and from there, it was very much a, not a typical recruitment process. He really, you know, I was the first engineer to come in. So he really wanted to understand, was I the type of engineer um, to come into the company that, that him and the other co-founders had founded? Um, and I think just, you know, regardless of what they were actually building, how they were building it, what the salary was, I think just that sort of personal interaction early on in my career really sold that idea of, oh, this is what it's like to work in a small organization with people who really do care about you Absolutely. And so, Will, I know some of the experience that you've had looking across a number of customers you've mentioned, or a lot of companies, uh, you've mentioned that pitfall of putting a resume up on your career site and hoping that that, that, that does it. Any other um, challenges or consistent issues or pitfalls that you've seen companies go through in struggling to hire the right talent outside of just what I would say the field of dreams hiring model? If you build it, they will come. Any other model that, that you think that startup founders may want to stay away from? Yes, I think um, you, you mentioned job descriptions. I'll do, I'll do my little job description rant. Um, I, I don't think anyone really likes job descriptions um, and nothing really has been done about that, which is quite frustrating. Um, a typical job description is written by somebody who's never written a job description before, who goes online, finds a job description for a similar role, copies it, but that job description was written by somebody who didn't know how to write a job description and did the same thing. And so we're, we're, we're amplifying the mistakes that we're making. Um, and there is a very, very simple and straightforward thing that you can do when you're writing a job description, describe the job. Don't describe the person that you're looking for mm. because let the candidate recognize that they're the person who can do that job. So you say, we want to uh, double sales in the next six months rather than we're looking for somebody with X amount of sales experience and these kinds mm. of qualifications and all the rest of it. Um, so there's an aspect of self-selection, mainly because if you start 
describing the characteristics or the qualities or the uh, attributes of the person that you're looking for, you're automatically actually excluding people who would otherwise be very good at doing the job. Uh, but because you've decided like the mold, and then you go through a selection process where you go, are you the mold? Are you the mold? Are you the mold? You're completely missing out on potential talent of people who could do the job, but they're just not the traditional person that you might expect. Mm -hmm. There's also this weird thing that happens with um, when you're hiring for a role that no one in the business does at the moment, but you know that you need it. Then you go and decide who the person is who can do that job, even though none of you are that person. And so, and it's 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 a weird sort of oh I know I well I I guessed that person should probably have X number of years. I didn't you know no 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 describe the job. Then the second thing to take into account with job descriptions is they shouldn't be called job descriptions. They should be called job adverts. And you know when you go onto a a, a listing site, they are referred to as job ads. But we don't write them in an advertising way. We, you know, as you think about this, it's like, uh, you know, oh, I've created X product. I'm going to buy a billboard and I'm going to write like a bullet point list of features of my product. And that's somehow going to get people to buy. No, no, no. I'm You're selling a dream, right? At least if you're a, you know, FMCG brand, for example, like you're not going to have um, uh, uh, an FMCG brand like stick, you know, it, it has, you know, this this amount of sugar and no, 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 no. It's like you're selling a dream. And it's the same thing with with the job description is that's the first time you ever speak to somebody who might potentially spend eight to 16 to 24 hours a day with you for the next few years slogging it out. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time you ever speak to them. So make it good. Hmm. And I think that's a really great uh, set of recommendations as well. And in fact, Andrew, when I think about the experience you've had hiring, not only at Yo-Yo Wallet, but at other places as well, it um, I can't help but think that you have a, a perspective on what these technologists in the market may be looking for from an employer. And so when you think about how to attract developers, architects, engineers, um, what do you believe those those technologists are looking for in a job? Again, understanding that our listeners may be trying to think about how do I write the appropriate job advert instead of a job description? But what do you think they're looking for that we can help our help our listeners learn from? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with just tailing on on the on the last question. This idea of selling the job. I think most people can identify that you know, sell the dream. It's a startup. There's, you know, high risk, high reward. We really do focus on that reward part. We talk about stock options. We talk about this being, you know, the entry point to your CV and the company expanding, going from a junior engineer to a senior engineer and beyond um, in a matter of years versus decades. But I think something that's underappreciated is the high risk part of that equation. Um, really trying to, you know, listen to candidates and a lot of engineers might not bring this up in conversations, but really trying to understand have they had experience of them, themselves or, you know, their friends or family being in other startups that maybe haven't been successful. Um, they have questions around, you know, what's the burn rate of a company? Is this going to last six months from now? Um, trying to, you know, I think because it's a sensitive matter, just generally it's around, you know, money and the health of the company, some of them don't feel like they can ask that question. And I think if they get a whiff that the company might not be in the best position, whether that's right or wrong, they might not ask that question and then you lose that candidate and you just don't know why. And so I think really having that open and honest conversation with them and why, you know, I was saying before, you go to the coffee shop, you don't just jump straight into the interview and do the technical assessment, really try to almost answer their questions and show yourself as a real viable company that has lots of strengths. Of course, there's weaknesses when it comes to being a startup. But, you know, you can say about um, what mitigating strategies you put in to the company for all the risks that are obviously inherent with, with what you're doing. Um, 
And so, you know, a lot of the engineering candidates who come in and we talk to them, they're not actually that product focused. If I can find a smart engineer who loves to write code, who likes to solve problems, and who's really invested in the product, I don't want to call them a unicorn. They definitely do exist. We have lots of them at YoYo, but they're much harder to come by. And so what I find a lot of engineers, they're almost product agnostic. They don't really care whether it's a B2B solution or a B2C. They just want to know what technologies are using under the hood. I think that's a powerful point when you talk about, again, attracting through the technology, the underlying, selling the dream. And the agnostic focus, I think, is interesting as well. That for your, in your case, for example, you may or may not be looking for someone with a specific passion for fintech. Yes. Uh, but where you're, again, the, the set of technologies, the stack you're using, finding someone with that passion is really a powerful attribute and something that would be uh, something you'd be looking for. Exactly. And you see this between people who are very religious about the types of language they want to use or the divide between, you know, being on AWS or some other cloud and really trying to dig into that, figuring out what the candidate has used previously. And if you're using a piece of the technology that they haven't used previously, just the fact that it's different, if you can articulate that to them, that maybe they didn't know about that piece of technology, but it's an interesting thing that they can learn. Because I think part of those interesting, challenging problems is most engineers want to learn things. They don't want to stagnate in their job, or at least the ones we're hiring for kind of high growth startups. And so if you can, you know, there's half the stack you already know, and you can, you know, hit the ground running and be productive. But guess what? There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can go and read about and learn from, you know, other smart people beside you. I think that's something that really motivates them. So, Andrew, we've talked a lot about uh, proactively reaching out to access talent, not only through the job advertising, but creating a sense of brand. And I'm curious about the channels that you would consider. So creating that brand is one thing. Knowing what you're looking for is another. But what channels have you found to be helpful for you at YoYo or in previous startups to actually go and get close to those people outside of the burger and the beer concept, which is definitely one of my favorite channels that I've heard so far? Yeah. I think, you know, I'll start off by saying I think this is one of the most difficult areas, not just for me, but for, for a lot of people. Um, part of my career, I obviously was an engineer and then I got into growth and it has this idea of kind of marketing. And so when I view the world, I very much think about it in terms of a funnel. Um, and you think about, you know, when you're looking at what is the kind of single channel, multiple channels that are bringing in users, specifically for a, for a startup in their early days, a lot of people who seem to, to do this right uh, consistently say, don't spray and pray. Um, very much find one channel, really learn what that channel is, how to understand it. Um, and, you know, this is from a kind of customer user perspective for people using your product. Um, and then you really start to scale that up. Now, I would like to transfer that from kind of a marketing product perspective into sort of a hiring perspective. At least in my experience in the early days, I haven't found that to be true yet. Maybe I haven't spent enough time on it or I'm not that good. I don't know. Um, but I think it generally comes down to, for me, is a bit more of a spray and, and pray. Um, probably less praying, um, but it's, you know, picking a number of different channels where still back to kind of the marketing analogy, when you start in a channel, there's, you know, lots of um, customers or, or employees or potential employees who may want to work for you. And then slowly as that channel dries up because you've tapped it enough or other employers start to see that, that kind of dries up like a well and you find a different um, channel. I think that kind of a similar thing applies there. And so for me, it's not really just focusing on one. It's going through either reaching out directly to candidates through LinkedIn or through meetups or advertising um, 
the company speaking at events, it's really, you know, and when I look at what the actual success rate for that, I think the only success rate that seems to, you know, from a numbers perspective, be better than anyone else is referrals. You have a new recruit come in, you say who are the best people you've worked with, um, and then you actively try and, and hire those. Again, that very quickly dries up. And a lot of engineers are very cautious about that. They've just come into a new company. They don't want to look like they're stealing from prior employees or they don't want to sell the dream to a friend and then maybe it doesn't turn out to be true. They'll definitely take a, you know, a greater risk for themselves rather than, than try and do that to a, a friend or a colleague. And so in that respect of, again, referrals has probably been the, the best converting channel or the best one for us. But when I look at all the numbers, it's very almost evenly distributed across all the other different channels that uh, that we use. Okay. okay. And I think the the marketing analogy, or at least the the idea that your you you as an employer is a thing that you can sell, uh, is is a, is you know we mentioned it at the top of the show, but I think digging down in, in there in, in terms of behavior. So it's not necessarily which channel do you choose, but I think there is there's so much information out there, and and and, and a lot of I think particularly new companies do a very good job of identifying their customer persona, working out what motivates them, working out how to communicate with them, which channels are relevant to that particular customer persona. And we don't naturally tend to take those approaches to attracting employees, mm. but we should, and we absolutely should. And the idea of, of, you know, I have an idea of the person that's going to be really successful here. What motivates that person? Where mm. do they get their trusted information? That's where we're going. Mm -hmm. That's the channel, right? And you have a, a, a similar thing with the, with the selection process. And I think that the, it, it's, it's unfortunate uh, but th there are often very, very close links between recruitment and, and dating. Uh, and I don't mean dating as in like kind of short termist. I mean, like trying to find a life partner. right? Mm -hmm. uh, because ultimately, there is a there's a similarity in terms of you're going to be spending a lot of time with this person. You're 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 approaching difficult topics. You're you're kind of you're building something together. I think one of the things that I can again find another analogy to what we do in product development is kind of a an anti pattern that generally emerges where you try, you know, you're building a feature, you ship it, it doesn't quite work. And then you just bounce around and find different features. And, you know, some people refer to this as kind of chasing shiny objects. And I think it's a similar thing. Um, at least I found it's, it's very much amplified here in London. Every week, I literally must have 20 recruiters sending me expertly put together CVs of what I'm imagining or honeypot or fake candidates. Um, and it's quite tempting when you're actively trying to hire. It's hard. I've got, you know, tons of work to do. And now I've got four hours of interviews for the rest of the day. And a nice little email comes in and says, there's a perfect candidate for you. And I think if you're constantly trying to almost shove away a lot of these shiny objects, and I think it can very much be for a lot of startups or even other companies to chase things that you shouldn't be chasing, you know, mm. just stick to what is your strategy, you know, keep executing on that and stop worrying about all the noise that will inevitably find you. You've hit a really important point there, which is how much time do you spend on this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of those difficult to answer questions. Um, I, I would suggest that if you're thinking about this, uh, that you should spend more time on it than you think. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, going back to what I said earlier around recruitment tends to be an afterthought. Um, it means that we naturally, like you, you should always be recruiting. You should always be, you should be committing a, a, a significant amount of your time to it, regardless of the fact that you are therefore taking time away from product development and growth and all the rest of it, because 
you it, it, you don't want to be in the situation where suddenly you need a whole load of people and you don't you don't have them and you can't get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also particularly recommend, and this is true of teams up to maybe even fifteen twenty, is that everyone's recruiting all the time. It's not just one person or a, a small group of people. Uh, uh, responsibility. Um, I think this is particularly true in terms of you saying that that referrals were so important. Mm-hmm. But that's very so much truer at the earlier stage than it is later. Although there's evidence to suggest that referrals remain the most effective channel. Um, although it it's awful for diversity, but that's another conversation. Um, uh, and so yeah, if your if your engineering team is constantly talking about how awesome their job is, then you're likely to attract other engineers. That's right. So, Andrew, can you give us some insights into what you do to retain talent? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think one of the most important things that I've found um, is the one-on-ones I do with um, my engineers. Um, the reason I think that's so important, we talk a lot about kind of the lean startup and, and kind of the startup community and the sort of, you know, build, measure, learn feedback loop. Um, and that's obviously, you know, very specific on sort of a product context about building something really lightweight, shipping it, and then really listening to your customers, talking to them, looking at the data, and then trying to iterate on that. I think, you know, I've applied the same sort of model internally within companies where I meet, I had a, you know, I have a team of, of 25 product managers and, and engineers. I meet with every single one of them every two weeks. Um, give or take, unless I'm away on business. And I find, you know, we go out for coffee, we get out of the office, um, and it's really just a place for me to listen to them. And again, I think a lot has been written on doing one-on-ones. I find when I actually ask, you know, people at least coming in, you know, have they gone through one-on-ones? And I think not many people have. So I think although there's been a lot written about it, it's still not a widely accepted practice. And I think why this is so important is it's not about necessarily me mentoring them or, you know, providing insight or answering questions, which of course that does happen. It's really a feedback loop for me that you have, you know, for my team, I have 25 um, engineers and product managers. Each one of them has their own um, things that are going well, things that are not going well. And I think, you know, I think being in my position, one of the hardest things is that you don't get that feedback. You, you know, you go and you present to the team or the company and it's just a deafening silence. You go ask questions and you get most people who don't respond and a few people who are really on it or had something to say, they'll they'll go back. Um, and if you ask people questions kind of one-on-one and give them that space, you know, the first time, again, they're, they're a bit nervous, especially new employees. They don't know who you are, that you're their boss. They don't want to give you feedback. Whereas over time, you build a relationship with you talking about their girlfriend or their boyfriend or the husband or their wife or their kids or just where they went on vacation. And again, um, to Will's point, it's a bit more of a relationship, not just from the start, um, which, again, that very much sets the tone for later when they actually come to, to be a part of the organization. But you're continuing on that relationship. And then when something does happen, whether it's personally that, you know, obviously will impact their job or whether it's something professionally and it can be really trivial things from you know, the temperature in the office is not quite right, which, you know, very trivial thing. Lots of people have a different optimal temperature, but that can really eat at somebody who's, you know, feeling uncomfortable. Um, you know, there's those things to our architecture is not right or we're going down, you know, a really bad strategic path. Whereas if you're not on an exec team, sometimes people don't feel they can have that voice in sort of a public forum. Whereas if they do feel at ease, you're honest with each other, they can bring up these these points that you really do get a, a rich feedback loop. And it's really not just that one time because it's this regular, you know, cycle every two weeks that I'm meeting with them, you can implement a new process. And a lot of time that doesn't work. 
and then you keep, you know, asking that question, hey, you, you had this issue, you know, a few months ago where our architecture wasn't right or the temperature wasn't right. Did, did that problem get solved? And very quickly you get, you know, that answer that it didn't. And it isn't just a single data point. It's a data point across all uh, the employees that, that someone would manage. And I think that's a really healthy thing to end up in, in getting kind of an, an iterative feedback loop where you're doing it over and over again. Because today's problems, if you're good at what you do, you'll solve them. Mm -hmm. um, tomorrow, you know, as a company scaling from, you know, at Yo-Yo Wallet, going from 20 to 50 people in the last, um, I think, six to eight months. Um, when I was at, you know, a company in Vancouver before, I was engineer in Mawand, and we scaled up to 40 people in, in the span of, again, a year and a half. What worked or what you solved at 5, 10, 15, 20 people very much breaks past that. And so it's like constantly building in a process to actually know what's going wrong because the things that go wrong will be very, very different from what you expected or what you read about or what you can, you know, glean from other people in other industries. And so kind of building that in, much like you build that into your product kind of feedback loop, I think is, is super helpful to retaining employees that they actually feel like they're listened to. I think that's one of the most important parts. I would suggest... Uh that it's not just retention. Uh, you know, you've got the three stages of recruitment, attraction, selection, and retention. Um, if if you're seeking that kind of feedback loop, you're you're taking that same build, measure, learn approach uh, at all stages. Um, it, it's something that you should naturally be doing with your product as well. It should be behaviors that you're very used to. Uh, don't forget that your recruitment is just another part of your business and, and, and you should be taking that approach there. Makers Academy, everything is about feedback. We're constantly in communication with our students, with our uh, hiring partners, uh, with each other. It's all about giving and receiving feedback. And if you can create a culture where um, giving feedback and acting on it is, is just the norm, then you're going to accelerate uh, so much faster. I love the phrase, and, and this is, um, I'm very grateful to the software engineering community for this because we use it outside of software engineering as well, which is it's nobody's fault and everyone's problem. Mm -hmm. We hear from our startup customers all the time that raising capital, selecting technology, yeah, those are complicated, but thinking about accessing talent, attracting talent and building a culture, that's really one of the hardest things that, that people face. And so I think your uh, insights and expertise today have been very helpful. So thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. In the next episode from AWS Startup Stories, we'll be talking to Clementine Lalande, CFO and COO of Once Dating, about going global with a startup. I hope you'll join us then. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the AWS Startup Stories webpage in the show notes for the podcast, along with a useful cheat sheet. To find out about AWS and how we can help you grow, build, and transform your business, join thousands of innovative leaders at the AWS Summit on June 28th.